Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Valeria Luiselli, winner of the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Best Fiction, the Carnegie Medal, and the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship. Her latest book is Lost Children Archive, published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Valeria, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And first, you were scheduled to be here in Raleigh, North Carolina this week. Uh, today, actually, as we sit here recording for the Quail Ridge Books in North Carolina uh, Book Festival Arts and Lecture Series, an appearance that was canceled due to the climate in the world right now surrounding um, COVID-19, the coronavirus. That appearance has been rescheduled for October 27th, and I thank you for that. Uh, how are you, Valeria, dealing with the threat of the coronavirus right now? Well, these are very tough times, um, definitely. Um, I think for me, I, I live in a house with five women and Lola the dog. Mm. And um, what we have been doing, although some of some of the women that live here have had to go for different reasons. My mother, for example, who is not American and does not have medical insurance here, we had to make the difficult decision uh, of her returning to Mexico mm. and fearing that there might be um, discrimination in the, in the hospital system uh, for people that, that are in her situation. So not all of us are here, which is part of, part of what is being difficult for us. Mm. But uh, other than that, we are, I think, just committed to reinventing everydayness. Mm. Um, and I think what has been the focus of, of these days for us is to remain serene and remain creative to remain serene and remain creative and we are we just set up like uh workstations around around the house so we we devote some time to to reading out loud we devote time to painting we devote time to music playing musical instruments we are fortunate we live in the bronx and we have a a, a little garden and deck so we are waiting for um, some flower beds to come to begin a garden. So we're, we're just focused on, on, yeah, on building a world from inside the house, I guess. Right. Thank you so much, Valeria. And I do want to take a moment to encourage our listeners who may be stuck at home um, to order a few books from Quail Ridge Books. Uh, we will ship them to you for free. We do believe it is important right now that we support our community uh, stores, bookstores, booksellers, and other shops out there who pay taxes to support our local infrastructures. Um Valeria, I want to talk to you about your new novel, Lost Children Archive. This novel deals with a couple and their two children uh, from previous marriages. This couple is involved in the art of soundscaping. Can you explain to our listeners the concept of soundscaping, what it is and what drew you to write about it? Yeah, sure. I think... Um, so, I, I, I've never done or I had never done work in sound mm. before writing Lost Children Archive. Mm. Now I'm actually working on a sound piece with a musician and a sound artist. Um, but I, I, I came to sound because I was curious about different ways of, of documenting the world and how those different ways that we may use to document the world produce different forms, distinct, discrete forms of knowledge 
relationships with the world. And I think that sound, basically field recording, that is going out into the world and listening and recording the sounds of the world and then composing uh, with those sounds, composing a, either an archive of sounds or a piece that simply reflects different spaces through their sounds is, is a way in which we can know the world um, with perhaps more patience, perhaps more um, like an internal connection with it. We are used to to visual mediums and I think although I'm I, I, I love photography I love video I love cinema I think that we're also kind of becoming too accustomed to the the speed of image and the fact that it is something that can be kind of instantly consumed and then in a very ephemeral way just disappears um, <clears throat> sound cannot be consumed the way image is consumed. Sound has, you have to sit through time with sound in order to, to understand it. You can't, you can't, I mean, you can fast forward a, a piece of music or, or a podcast, but then you, then you don't get it, then you don't hear it, then you mm-hmm. miss out. And I think that that experience of time through sound is an, is an important one. It, it's, it's an experience that forces us to slow down and to connect to what we are experiencing with a lot of attention. Right. Thank you. And um, I've always been fascinated by the Arcades Project by Walter Benjamin, which was attempting to recreate aspects of 19th century Paris through all of these snippets and blurbs. And that's where my mind goes anytime folks are collecting very small pieces to reproduce a whole. Uh, are you familiar with that work at all? Yes, of course. Of course. And I... I, I love Walter Benjamin's work. Yeah, excellent. Um, thank you so much, Valeria. Uh, for our listeners, can you tell us who are the lost children? Hmm. Well, the lost children are many different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that ambiguity um, is important in a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't want to have the final say. And if I told you who the lost children were, I mm-hmm. think it would be considered pretty much the final say since I wrote that book. But, but you know, let me let me give you an, an answer at least, mm-hmm. uh, some kind of answer. I I think that that lost children, that the lost children is this entire generation of of young people mm-hmm. um, whom are experiencing childhood in a world where there seems to be no future and um but where there will be a future of course that but one that we have to imagine collectively and then work on collectively and this book is very much about storytelling and about intergenerational storytelling, right? It begins with the image of two children sleeping in the backseat of their parents' car as, as they're driving out of the city in which they live and toward the U.S.-Mexico border, which is, um, in my view, the kind of center of this country, even if it's the margin, right? Mm. And um, they're driving, uh, the parents are driving and the parents tell the story, um, of this trip that they're embarking on. The mother really tells it. The father 
talks to the children about the past of the U.S., particularly in relation with the, in relation to the genocide of the Native American people. And the kids listen, and then they start playing. But as the novel continues, the kids who are in the back seat um, are somehow no longer in the back seat, and they begin to tell the story, and they and they begin to live their their own their own journey right so the way i see this novel is very much the way i see what needs to happen and what will happen with this new generation of kids that is we give them a version of the world we try to make sense of the world for them uh, and then they will re-articulate that narrative and and retell the story their own story right thank you so much and um I do not want to dwell on this unless you want to, Valeria, but there is a novel released recently that dealt with issues surrounding the border that got quite a bit of attention uh, for the wrong reasons, that novel being American Dirt. Um, why do you think that that novel caused such a stir, and how did that redirect attention towards Lost Children Archive, which in our store, Quail Ridge Books, it certainly did? Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that um, that good things can come about uh, always of of stirs and debates and I mean I think that that um, you know in 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 this discussion about whether um, writers have a right or not to write about what is not really their their own community and basically in the discussion around appropriation um, I, stand, I stand quite firmly in the side of a conscientious and respectful use of our freedom. I think that writers not only have the right to create a freedom that is really right about anything they want to write, but also I think they have the obligation to write about other other whatever anotherness is for them. You know, I think it's our duty to imagine beyond our confined niche of identity, beyond our personal experience, beyond our communities. The thing is that it has to be done uh, with common sense and with intelligence and with sensitivity. Um, it's not enough to, to kind of do, do a little bit of research and then um, and then just think that you can embody another consciousness um it's it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of um emotional intelligence it takes a lot of um listening to others to be able to write about something that you don't know about and and i think that the, maybe what happened with american dirt is that it was it was a thriller that was covered um that was packaged as a as a literary novel and you know those all those thrillers um, about like or that that depict Mexico as a kind of narco hell don't get attention from the main literary <clears throat> main literary um, journals and spaces. Uh, this one did. I, I'm not sure why. Um, I think because it was packaged a certain way, because the the author pushed pushed as well in that direction, um, and so it it got the attention of the literary community. The good thing about that is that it stirred it stirred us into action. Um, 
and some 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 members of the Latinx community much more than others um, were really able I think to to activate themselves and uh, begin a conversation that is long overdue about representation within um, within publishing houses <clears throat> the fact that there are such few um, Latina women, for example, in publishing houses or in positions of power within the literary industry more generally, right? Uh, we're lacking agents, we're lacking translators um, that that come from Hispanic communities. We're, we're, we're lacking a lot in the very guts of our, of our guild. So I think um, we we began at least a conversation about the need to change this from from the very from the from the inside excellent thank you so much valeria uh listeners we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsors and i will be right back with valeria lewis the Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Valeria Luiselli, author of Lost Children Archive, published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Uh, Valeria, this novel, Lost Children Archive, is partly a novel of the road, a road trip novel. How do you position this novel amongst other novels of the genre? Um, On the Road by Jack Kerouac and The Road by Cormac McCarthy, for example, both of which feature heavily in your novel. Um... I I think this 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 novel Lost Children Archive is in conversation definitely with with the genre of, of um, road trip novels, um, but it also somehow contests um, some of the some of the foundational myths I think that make the road novel possible. Not only possible, but also perhaps one of the um, distinctly. North American and Anglo-Saxon North American novel, right? Mm. Um, I think McCarthy's novel is a is an exception, an exception to to the to the road trip novel. Mm. It is a dystopic, post-apocalyptic road trip novel. Mm. In his case, uh, and Lost Children is not quite like that, but it's definitely not a road trip novel in the sense that Kerouac's is. That is, it doesn't rest on the foundational myth myth of a country being kind of explored and reinvented. Um, A foundational myth that goes deeper, which is this this narrative of the USA being um, constructed narratively as, Mm -hmm. um, as this movement from east to west uh, and this exploration and discovery of of a um, supposed vacuum. Of course, the country was not 
uh, vacant, um, but there were many communities already living in it. But but that foundational myth, the settler myth, the frontier myth as well, are somehow palpitating silently in the heart of the road trip, of the typical road trip novel, I think. And Lost Children Archive is written very much against the grain of that. Lost Children Archive um, is very much written in order to question the, the very foundational myth in which or upon which this country rests. Because I believe that that foundational myth is one that creates a collective image of the country in which or from which a lot of communities are automatically excluded, right? Not excluded, and actively excluded. And of course, the Native American community that was here before the arrival of, of Europeans, but also um, the Hispanic community that that uh, either was here because uh, part of this country was part of Spain at some point, um, or be, or a community that that comes here because migratory cycles have always functioned in this way. So in the in the in the foundational myth that that sets the U.S. up as a as a country created by. Um, these pioneers and pilgrims that settle eventually in the vacant lands of, of the West um, is, is one in which all, all the others that are not Anglo-Saxon uh, or of Anglo-Saxon origin, not white, not Christian, are simply not part of that collective identity. Right. Thank you, um, Valeria. Spinning off of this question slightly for a moment, what is it about the opening to Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, that make you uh, made you quote the first line of it so often, that line being, when he woke in the woods, in the dark and cold of the night, he'd reach out to touch the child sleeping beside him? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have children or not, mm-hmm. but um, I think one of the one of the one of the things that, that that one doesn't expect, or that I certainly didn't expect um, to happen when I became a parent, um, was that suddenly there was this new, humongous new realm of of worry and concern for others, right? Mm. For another, I think I think we're we're all a little bit more um, more selfish when when it's just us um and of course selfishness can be overcome by by many other means you don't have to become a parent to 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 learn um a sense of responsibility to others and and to communities but but i think that the parenthood definitely um jump starts uh, a very um deep transformation in how we care for others uh, but that comes with for some of us at least this intense paranoia mm-hmm. <laughs> of something happening to your kids right an intense worry that we have to carry and mitigate because we cannot live in a constant state of worry mm-hmm. um, I talk in the novel about something that my friend and and, and adored colleague uh, Samantha Schreblin, the Argentinian writer, discusses in one of her books, her book is called Fever Dream in English, Distancia de Rescate in Spanish, and Distancia de Rescate, the translation of that is Rescue Distance, Mm. and 
rescue distances, she she explains it as the constant operation working in a parent's mind, like an equation in which time and distance are factored in to know whether you can save a child from danger. If your child is close enough to you that you can get to him or her and save him or her from potential danger. And so I think we all, we all live um, with this rescue distance um, operating, <clears throat> operating in our minds constantly. And that first Cormac McCarthy line is precisely that, you know, the, the need to, to, to reach your hand back or out and know that, that your kid is there and he or she, to know that your kid is there and that he or she is fine and, and sleeping soundly. Right. Um, and I do, I have a three-year-old son. He'll be four next month. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I do relate. And I'll, I'll ask you a couple more questions about kids. Um, I want to ask you about a quote in this novel. Uh, you write while describing the parents in their vehicle listening to their daughter. I suppose after listening to her, we both decided, even though we never really spoke about it, that we should treat our own children not as lesser recipients to whom we, adults, had to impart our higher knowledge of the world, always in small sugar-coated doses, but as our intellectual equals. And I'm hoping you, Valeria, can talk about this moment, both in your novel and in your life. Uh, when do you know that it is time to make a decision like this? And it is, is it a decision you stick with once you've made it? Well, um, I'm not my narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, what she says there about her own children, I partly, partly uh, agree with, mm-hmm. um, or partly p- try to practice. Um, I think. Oh, who am I kidding? No, I do. I, I, I do like think the same way. Right. <laughs> in, at least in this particular thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> at least in this particular thing, I, I I think that it's our responsibility as parents to as parents and as teachers, by the way, mm-hmm. um, to the younger generations, um, to give. Well, to first of all to protect the younger generations from from having to carry the burden of of brutal concerns too early mm. because younger younger people are not yet um, equipped emotionally often even though they may be equipped intellectually but they're often not emotionally equipped to carry the burden of of the anxieties and the fears that that this world sometimes gives to us, right? So I think that there's a part part of educating a child um, or children or teenagers or even college students is is not presenting not just not just handing over the anxiety and fear to them, but rather to to give them emotional and intellectual tools so that they will be able in their lives to understand and deal with the, the many worries that, that they will have as they grow up, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that those tools are, are the tools of humanism, basically, right? The tools that a book gives you. A book, a book doesn't 
a book is not, or I mean, or I'm not interested in books that are comforting, but but books that allow me to, through language, have a more complex interaction with the world. Uh, books that that can help us ask questions more clearly, because sometimes what we're lacking is the clarity to articulate a question properly. Right? Mm-hmm. Once you you once you can articulate a question properly, um, things can become clearer. Uh, but not only books, right? I mean, I think giving them tools through music and through art, visual arts, um, is is the only way to to equip them for a world in which they will have to constantly be reimagining uh, community and community life. Right. Thank you. And. Um one more question about kids. I want to ask you about another book that plays a role in this novel, uh, Lost Children Archive. And that book is the book with no pictures. Um, how did the book with no pictures find its way into your novel? Um, that was a book that um, that someone must have given to, to me when, when my daughter was really, really little. Mm-hmm. And I, as... As you may imagine, it's a book that that I had to read out loud five thousand times or more um, in several different settings, and with, a, with several children, with just my daughter. My daughter wanted to take it to school at some point. Uh, it's a hilarious book, and um, I just really loved it. And it is it is a book that uh, enc- encourages the reader to read out loud. Mm. Um, because of all the onomatopoeias and because of the, the it's kind of self self consciousness of the book. It's kind of meta literary, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and you know the just the practice of reading out loud to a child or to a group of children is one of the most beautiful practices that humanity has come up with. And I think that, for example, now in these strange lonely times. Um, of corona, coronavirus, uh, in our communities, reading out loud in the family with the people that you're you're with, um, and if you're not with them for whatever reason, maybe connecting on the phone, landline or Skype or whatever you have, uh, and being able to read out loud to each other uh, is is so grounding and so such a such a beautiful way to to feel the threads that that bind us together in community i often receive um whatsapp messages from friends from samantha Sherlin, for example samantha sent me a 17 minute <laughs> whatsapp message mm-hmm. in which she basically read um an essay by vivian gormnick uh out loud uh an essay about feminism and just sent it she said, hey, this made me think of you. I'm going to read it to you. And it, and I just sat you know, for, for 17 minutes listening to her voice and listening to Vivian Gornick's ideas. And it was it was a beautiful it was a beautiful experience. So I, I really encourage listeners um, to read out loud to each other. Yeah, absolutely. I too, Valeria, have read um, the book with no pictures out loud 5,000 something times, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes back to back to back. Um 
I want to talk more about the art of documenting. Besides uh, the recording of sound, you also deal with this through the lens of a Polaroid camera um, that one of the children in this novel is learning how to use. What is it about this art of documenting that um, your protagonists and people in general find so necessary, and how does it differ from a sound recording to a photograph that slides out of a Polaroid camera? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really interested in in process, um, in in the process of making things, right? The process of making a book, the process of of uh, making a sound piece, and I and I'm interested in the, particularly in the relationship between the process and the result, and how the distance between the two things may be shortened in a way that the process remains readable, visible, audible um, in the results, in the final result, like kind of messy fingerprints that one leaves there of the process of the making of the thing, right? There's a, I mean, if, if you think of the original meaning of fiction, um, in Latin, fingere means, among other things, to make something out of clay, right? Mm. And thinking of fiction that way is, I think, very revealing because when you make something out of clay, you give shape to something that was already there, the raw, the raw material of everyday life, um, being molded by the imagination, but also by your hands. And in, in, in clay, the fingerprints of our shift, of our shaping, uh, remain to a degree visible, right? Mm. Um, and the accidents can also remain there, um, the accidents of the process of making. and So I'm, I'm very interested in thinking about fiction that way. Um, and in the process of, of my engagement with fiction making, I need to come at, come at the questions that I'm asking and at the material that I'm exploring through several different processes. And definitely taking pictures has been one of them for several years for me now it was kind of accidental uh it started because i had a then three-year-old child mm. and i was asked to 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 write a map of her a map of where i a map of anything in fact mm. but i chose to to write it, but it also had to be it had to have some visual component so i I chose to write a map of Harlem, where I lived at that moment. I now live in the Bronx, um, but it wasn't just a map of Harlem. But it was a map of the all the swings in playgrounds in Harlem. Because so I had a three-year-old, so I thought, what am I going to do every after every afternoon? I can't just isolate myself in a library or and think about mapping abstractly. I I need to incorporate my my everydayness because this is this is the only way I, I, I can work and it's the way I know how to work also so I, I decided to just write it by taking my kid to all the every a different swing every day mm. and we and then I thought well how do we document this and every every time I would take out my phone my daughter would get really annoyed with me in that period she mm. still does she would say don't look at the phone look at the world mm -hmm. <laughs> And uh, she's so right, right? Mm. And um, I thought, well, how do we do this in a way that's fun? And I asked a friend who owns cameras, and he said, why don't you, why don't you use my Polaroid camera 
um, I think she might she might have fun with it because it's it's like a very it's a it's an interesting process and she can participate and then I thought okay cool yeah lend it to me and he did and I learned how to use the Polaroid the new Polaroid systems in which like it's a bit tricky you know the, the, it's not that the picture comes out and you and you and you shake it right. <laughs> it's it's a little bit trickier anyway uh, I began working that way with my daughter in these playgrounds um, and it worked out really well but it also turned out that the, the these these fingerprints which photos are right like these sort of indexical documents that's a horrible horrible academic word but 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 um, but that's that's also what what they are right they they are these indexes right they, a photo cannot be possible if the instant that that it recorded didn't happen right it's not like a painting and and these indexes i then always place like on a table or on a surface in kind of sentences right i try to write write sentences with them and understand what structure might work for telling the story that's behind them and so i i have worked like that now for for some years first it was the swings of harlem but then I, I did it with other projects and then of course eventually with Lost Children Archive and it's definitely this this process is definitely part of my new my new um, project which is a sound piece mm. uh, for which I am traveling to the borderlands uh, with a musician and sound artist um, and they are recording sound I am writing through watching them listen and I am also recording some things through uh through photographs, through Polaroid photographs, that help will help me and and are helping me then go to the page and and, and start working on structure and narrative. Thank you, Valeria. I look forward to uh, that project. Finally, I want to hearken back to earlier in the conversation when we talked around American Dirt and ask you where is the line between documenting something and making art out of someone else's suffering? And before you answer, I want to read a quote uh, from Lost Children Archive. And that quote is, Cultural appropriation, pissing all over someone else's toilet seat, who am I to tell this story, micromanaging identity politics, heavy-handedness, am I too angry, am I mentally colonized by Western Saxon white categories, what's the correct use of personal pronouns, go light on the adjectives, and oh, who gives a fuck how very whimsical phrasal verbs are. Uh, with this quote from Lost Children Archive in mind, can you discuss the line between documenting and using someone else's suffering for art? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very, very, not only a thin line, but it's, it, it, I don't think that um, we should be very prescriptive about this because generalizations don't really work mm. for for this very complicated issue. Mm -hmm. I think each um, artist, each writer, each filmmaker that engages with the problems of the world, which are many and which involve the suffering of many, has to engage from a place of, of emotional intelligence, as I said earlier, and concern for what he or she is investigating. I mean, it's not, you can't be a, a tourist um, of, of issues because, the, the, I mean, tourist 
uh, using the word as, as as a metaphor more than anything. You can't you can't just go out and consume um, as much as possible as quickly as possible and then try to turn it into something. There's there's a patience and an engagement that is required uh, for for art to for the art that comes out of that to to mean anything um, to mean anything for others. Um, there's so many things. I mean, I'm naming just a few here, but there's so many things that that allow a book or a movie or a collection of photographs to to be meaningful and to engage deeply with the world. But it's I don't think we can prescribe or generalize. Um, and I think I see it with my students. I worry that they are so frightened of being accused of cultural appropriation that they are n not exploring um, their creativity. They're just worried about others policing them and self-policing. Self and I think that's that, that is very bad news for art and for writing, for all the arts. Um, we have to find some middle way. And so for example, in my, in, when I teach workshops, one of um, my students were worried because my workshop had to do with violence in the borderlands. And they were like, but we're in New York and we've, some of them have never been to the border, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I said, well, you know, first of all, you, ha you have to have a position on this matter. You're American and you live in the, in the most powerful country, economically speaking and militarily speaking. Uh, and this country has this border, which is one of the most violent borders in the world, um, you have to have a position. You don't get to not have a position, but in order to have a position, you have to be informed. You have to educate yourselves and educate yourselves through your courses. You have to, you have to understand it and you have to have a position. And if you're going to write about it, um, you have to write about it knowing that you do, you do have a responsibility toward this. That on one hand. On the other hand... Um, I tried to um, help them like really step outside themselves. So a lot of the exercises that, that I like writing exercises that I do with my students involve like like radically leaving their, their own viewpoints. So we um, I was really angry as many people were um, with uh, explosions going on in the Tohono O'odham nation last month and um, where the government and Customs and Border Patrol were basically clearing out a strip of land in order to, to build the new part of the wall there, right? And so we, we engaged with a lot of uh, different sources of news coming out of what was happening in the Tohono O'odham. And then I just asked my students to, to, write some, to, to write a piece, a small piece, from the point of view of a non-human entity. Uh, so they wrote pieces from the viewpoints of rocks and from the viewpoints of a, a wheel of a tractor, from the point of view of a bird, from the point of view of a saguaro cactus. And I think, you know, exercising that freedom, but also that responsibility of thinking uh, about others and through others is is essential to, to our craft. Mm. Right. Thank you so much, Valeria. Um, Listeners, I've been speaking with Valeria Luiselli, author of Lost Children Archive, published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Valeria, thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you so much for inviting me. Once again, I would like to thank Valeria Luiselli for joining me. Signed copies of Lost Children Archive can be pre-ordered in-store at Quail Ridge Books or online at www.quailridgebooks.com. If you're stuck at home, Quail Ridge Books is offering free media mail shipping of your books, curbside pickup, and browsing by appointment. Please visit www.quailridgebooks.com for more information. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.